Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, you can turn to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. Uh, This is the second in the series of 12 prophets that are known as the Minor Prophets, or the Twelve. And uh, as you'll know if you've been with us either the last two weeks, what we're doing right now at Trinity for the whole fall is going to walk through these prophets one week at a time. One week per book, which means bird's eye view, big picture. Last week, that really meant big picture because Hosea was 14 chapters long and we spent just a single week on it. This week, we don't have to stay quite so elevated because thankfully Joel is only three chapters. But we're still doing an overview here. So hopefully, I'm going to make this plug again now just because I can. I'm encouraging those of you who are going to be with us for this series to read these books ahead of time. It's always obvious. It should always be obvious which one's next if you... If you go to the website, there's a, there's a list of what dates each book goes with. And if you were here the week before, just go to the next one and read it ahead of time because there's going to be details I just can't get to in the sermons. But I think you'll appreciate the sermons more if you have already read the texts and have questions about them. So Joel is number two in order. If you're having trouble finding it, uh, it should be, if you turn maybe three-quarters of the way through your Bible, you're probably pretty close. It's, it's near the end of the Old Testament. Book of Joel. Anybody else remember back in May of this year that big fiasco with uh, Harold Camping? You guys remember Harold Camping? He was that, uh, that, I guess, religious radio guru who figured out through some sort of calculation that the world was going to end on May 21st of 2011. Of course, he's just the last in a long line of people to, uh, to make those kind of predictions Harold Camping is probably who we're prone to think of, people like that, when we think of the end of the world. When we think of the end of the world as a point of fascination with religious groups. We think of him, we think of maybe someone with a sandwich board sign with hand-painted, stenciled letters calling on people to repent because judgment is coming. We think of like crackpots. I think of uh, this big sign that's next to this really big lake in North Alabama. I, I live in Alabama, so I go back and forth up and down this stretch a lot uh, back, you know, for the holidays or whatever. And in North Alabama, you come on I-65 at this huge lake, and right next to it is this big hand-painted sign that says, as it has an old like, classic interpretation of the devil as some sort of red dragon-like figure with a pointy tail and ears and a pitchfork. And it says, go to church or the devil will get you. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I think we... When we think of the end of the world as a point of fascination for religious groups, maybe even when we think about calls for repentance, calls for warning and to return to God before it's too late, often those are the kind of places that we go in our minds. I think it's probably because, you know, a lot of, a lot of you out there uh, are academics or you're scientists of some sort, you're artists of some sort or... Uh, you guys are are part of a generation and, and a culture, especially in, in our part of town, that just doesn't think about these things as a way of life. We tend, to, we tend to only think about them as predictions that have gone wrong or calls to repent that have fallen empty or, or turned out meaningless. Unfortunately, I think these these poor images of the end of the world or the call to repent have maybe blinded us to just what a consistent theme that represents in the Bible. 
for all the ways it may have been abused by others all through history and even in our own day, it's still there. And on page after page, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, even in the words of Jesus himself, there are warnings of a day that's coming, like an actual day, a point in time, where God comes once and for all to wipe the world clean of all who oppose him. And page after page is full of calls to repent before it's too late, to turn back from whatever other source of authority you've submitted to, whatever source of meaning or pleasure you've run after, and to turn to God. Joel is perhaps one of the best examples of this in the Bible because Joel devotes his entire book to these themes. Joel represents just how comprehensive they are because it's a, it's a different sort of minor prophet in, a, in one particular way. Whereas lots of the other prophets, you can trace back to a specific historical time because they mention Hosea prophesied during this king's reign. And you can trace it back and know what the culture was like then, what sort of circumstances he was appealing to. It's true of a lot of the prophets. It's not true of Joel. There's nothing in here to mark it in history. There's also nothing in here, really, to, to specify what sins were being committed by the people that he, that he preached to. It's a very generic book. It's even got features in it that lead some to believe it was used for worship. And it, it was used as part of the liturgy, where it would be read on an ongoing basis to the people of Israel. The point is that it's a book that was meant to have a timeless message. It was written not to be specified to one group of people, but to all people who needed to hear a message that applied to them all equally. It's a book about the end of the world, about the day of the Lord. And it's a book about what it would look like for us not to be subject to the judgment that's coming then. Therefore, it's a book that reads about, or it sounds about like fingernails on a chalkboard often. But I want you to try to restrain yourself. If that's your reaction that you're having now as you hear about these themes, if you're already starting to check out and think, I'll just come back for Amos, maybe it'll have a little more interesting details. I want you not to do that because there's some beauty and vividness in the way that Joel gets at these common themes. And, and these themes, particularly because of what kind of book Joel is, they stand true for us just as much as they stood true for those to whom he was writing. They are timeless I want to frame Joel's message as we look at it from a bird's eye view through the lens of of repentance. Because all this talk of judgment of the day of the Lord and the call to repentance is really, it serves Joel's fundamental call to turn back to the Lord before it's too late. So, So here are the four things I want us to look at today. I want to look at the stakes of repentance. What's at stake in the call to repent and whether or not you heed that call. I want to look at the nature of repentance, what we can learn from Joel about what it looks like for us to turn back to God. Then I want to look at the grounds of repentance, why we can believe that if we turn back to God, God will respond to us in grace and not in judgment like we deserve. And then finally, the fruits of repentance, what it is that's ours if we return to him. Why don't you stand with me now? We are not going to read the entire book, but I want to stand in honor of God's word as we read just the first section of chapter 1, which is going to be where we start this morning. This is God's word from Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. 
Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, because it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We're going to start where Joel does. Judgment. Judgment is the main theme that comes through in every chapter of this little book. But one of his unique features, so if all the prophets are going to get at this, I warned you about this at the beginning of the series, it's going to be pretty redundant. A lot of these prophets have the same things that they're talking about. But one of Joel's unique features is that he presents us with several different layers to the judgment that's coming, the judgment of God against sin. It actually makes it pretty hard to read this book sometimes, to understand it. I don't know if you, some of you guys were reading this week. Maybe you ran up against this. It, it's really hard to tell when Joel is writing about something that just happened, something that's about to happen, or something that's going to happen at the end of the world. Is he talking about things that are going to happen to Israel in history and that they're going to survive and live on beyond? Or is he talking about like that final judgment day that's such a big theme in so many of the prophets and in the New Testament as well? In Joel, it's really hard. In fact, I'm not going to make any definitive statements about which ones fall into which at every, at every point. Because ultimately, they make the same point. Whether it was an, a, a judgment that was about to happen but wasn't going to be complete and final, or whether it's that final judgment that he talks about in chapter, chapter 3, the, the point is the same, that God is going to remove all trace of sin out of the, his world. There will be no knee, in other words, that won't bow to him. And it's coming for anyone who doesn't repent. This trick to understanding where Joel is talking about what reminds me, the best analogy I've read of it was another preacher used the analogy of driving towards the mountains. You know how, I mean, I, I love going to the Smokies. My family's done that for years. And, and, and when you get close to the Smokies, and you can still see them in the distance, they look kind of like a wall of mountains almost, right? You, you see them as one object almost against the horizon. They look like they're all in the same place, the same distance from you. And then you get among them, and you realize they're actually way far apart from each other. When you're driving on those windy roads through the national park, I mean, you, can, you come across one of those overlooks and you see a mountain here and then you see one over there and you, you get some depth to it when you're in the middle. Uh, Joel's kind of that way too. I mean, we, we get this image of a judgment that to our eyes, we can't really tell how far apart they are, but as they're experienced, they'll look a lot more like mountains do when you're in the middle of the park. We're going to do our best to distinguish where we can today, but ultimately we're going to make one single point about judgment. That is that it's coming and it's coming against all sin. That said, let me talk about the three layers to judgment that Joel presents us with. There's, there's one that's, uh, that is referring to something that happened recently, that was sort of a, recently to Joel, that was sort of a, a foreshadowing of what he believed was coming. 
a recent historical invasion of locusts. Then the second layer is God's judgment on his people, something that was still future when Joel was writing, a promise that even though they were in covenant with God, if they had continued to turn on him as they had, he would eventually fight against them and not for them, that judgment was coming for them too. And then the third is complete and final judgment of all people who stand opposed to him. It's, it's a, a section of chapter 3 that is viewed as this war between God and all the nations of the earth. So those are the three. I want to unpack each of those layers just so you can get a sense of the way that Joel sets this up and the images that he uses and so that this image of judgment will come through a little more clearly. So the first layer. The first layer is most people I read believe referring to something that had actually happened and it happened pretty recently. Joel chapter 1, the section that we just read, refers to these locusts. It begins with a call to tell the children of this historical thing that had happened, this major event in the life of, of the people that they didn't want to lose sight of. I mean, it's not unlike today's September 11th, right? We're remembering what happened 10 years ago, and, and it's the kind of thing that we will tell our children who weren't alive then and, and remind them because it shapes how we view the world, right? It shapes who, how we understand what danger is and, and where it lies. Similarly, this recent historical event that Joel was writing about was one that now was burned into the minds of the people, and they were using it as an impulse towards worship, calling them to tell the children to hand it down to the next generation because this shows us what's coming as a little bit of a sign. The description from chapter 1 leaves nothing to the imagination. I love verse 4. It just starts to pile on these different kinds of locusts, the cutting locusts and the swarming locusts and the hopping locusts and the destroying locusts. The point is that they eat up everything. They lay waste the vine and the fig tree, strip off the bark and throw it down. You skip ahead further to chapter in chapter 1 to verse 12. It talks about the vine drying up and the fig tree languishing and the pomegranate and the palm, the pomegranate and the palm and the apple all being dried up. It's images just like we saw in Hosea last week of plenty of 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 actually a surplus of the things that you need being actually ripped away from you as a way of exposing false sources of hope. That's what these locusts had done. They'd eaten everything. Imagine that so the cicada invasion that we survived from back in May and June was not just bugs that made a lot of annoying noise and dive-bombed you when you least expected it, but that they were tearing everything apart. And then imagine that it wasn't the same that, that it was a hundred times the number that we had, if you can imagine that. And you get something of the picture that Joel is, descri- is describing here. There are actually historical accounts of things like this happening. I, mean, I remember reading, as a kid, I remember reading or having read to me by my dad these books about uh, 19th century America written by uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, who, who wrote about her family's experiences in the Midwest. I think they made a really cheesy and unfortunate TV show about this. I'm not referring to that. I'm talking about the books. The, uh, I, remember, I remember reading, vividly remember reading this one account of how they had, they had all their crops ready, as I remember. Uh, but before they could get them in, there was this huge infestation of grasshoppers. And they describe like going out and seeing them, almost like a black cloud coming at them. And then you run into the house and you harbor and you get the doors and the windows all shut and latched. And then when she went out, everything being gone except grasshoppers piled on top of each other. Every step that you take, 
is crunching on top of all these grasshoppers. There's so many. They've devastated everything. But even the, probably the best and most relevant example I came across of, of when something like this actually happened, I read an account of, of an infestation of locusts in Palestine about 100 years ago. And what they described was, again, swarms, a lot like the, the ones that Laura Ingalls Wilder described, coming at uh, this entire region of Palestine. And what they would do is they would, they would eat for a while, but then they would mate, they would burrow down into the ground, they would leave their eggs, a lot like the cicadas that we've been talking about, only those eggs would hatch then, like at that time, they would come back up. We're talking about millions and millions of these things, and then they would go to town just eating everything in their sight. And the, the description that I read of that infestation 100 years ago actually follows the categories that Joel used here. This hopping locust and the swarming locust and the crawling locust, all the different ones that he refers to are actually pretty good descriptions of different phases of the life cycle of this locust and how it destroys things that are in its path. This happened. Joel took it as a sign. Joel took it as a sign of things to come. And ultimately, this picture of, what, of the way that some little judgments, smaller judgments can work, fits with our experience, I think. Sometimes, haven't you ever had a time in your life where something that you really valued was stripped away from you? Maybe it was because you did something to cause it to strip away. Maybe it was outside of your control. Something that you valued gets pulled out from under you, and it's in losing it that you realize how much you valued it, that maybe you had elevated it to a place that only God belongs. And you realize that that could itself be a discipline of the Lord in purging from you any kind of alternate hope. I've certainly experienced that. I'm imagining I'm not the only one in here. I think that's the way Joel is interpreting this judgment. It was God pulling away this prosperity that they thought made them secure so that they would see that they weren't and so that they would turn back, be inspired by that to turn back and repent. That's certainly where he goes in his next layer of judgment. If this one was a thing that really happened, that's to be told to the children as a warning to return to God before it's too late, before the final day comes. Chapter 2 gets into more detail about what the day of the Lord represents. And chapter 2 is all about that day coming against God's own people, the people that he was in covenant with. Joel doesn't say much here about the sin that leads to this judgment. He's nothing like Hosea. You know, Hosea was all about helping us to connect with what sin looks like. What is idolatry at root? And gives us that image of spiritual adultery. We're, we're being unfaithful to God in the same way that a spouse would be unfaithful to their covenant promises in marriage. He gives us that image of what sin is like. Joel doesn't give us anything like that. He assumes that we've read things like Hosea, that we already know what the people were guilty of. And now he's telling us in vivid detail what is going to happen to those who stand opposed to God. Chapter 2 is all about this. In verses 1 and 2, he launches into the, the, the lasting importance of the locust event. Read, read verses 1 and 2 with me. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people like there never has been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of all generations. It's an image of comprehensiveness, of something that's coming, that's terrifying, that's unavoidable, that will leave nothing in its wake. Verse 3 is another example. 
Fire devours before them. Behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Here's, here's the image that Joel is painting for us of what the judgment of the Lord is going to look like. Everything in front looks beautiful. It's as it should be. It's full of everything that's necessary for happiness and life. That's before. It looks like the Garden of Eden. But there is a fire coming that when it passes through, everything left in its wake will be empty. It will be like a desolate wilderness. It's hard for us to connect with this in the same way that Joel's hearers would have because we don't live in an agricultural society. We don't depend on these things that he's talking about getting wiped away, at least not tangibly. We do, but not, not, in, the same, not in the same vivid everyday sense that these people did. Maybe, maybe a better way to use his, uh, his, his analogy to help it come to life is to imagine the downtown skyline of Nashville or even better Manhattan, a symbol of plenty and security being wiped clean, being there one minute and the next day gone. I think nuclear holocaust is as close as our minds can get to the kind of complete devastation that this fire represents in an agricultural society. It's something that leaves nothing untouched. Then Joel moves to images of warfare. Again, they're extreme and they fit the times. Verse 4 is where he begins that. Their appearance, speaking of this people. He's using a people, but describing what God is bringing. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the top of mountains, like crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. I get the image in my mind of the Lord of the Rings. You know the second one? The Two Towers movie? I haven't read the books. Guilty. But I have watched the movies and I really like them. And there's that image of battle in that second movie, The Two Towers, where the good guys are all sheltered up into that one tower, that fortress. But they look out and what's coming for them is, as far as you can see, a a sea of blackness. They're the orcs, right? And they march with the, I mean, they're terrifying in their appearance. Their, their coming shakes the ground as their feet hit in unison. They come sweeping up to that tower and they scale the walls. It's, it's the images directly out of Joel 2. Look at verse 7. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They don't jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter the windows like a thief. Here you just have this unstoppable, moving wall of devastation headed straight for everything that that matters. It's, It's an image that people grow pale in front of. I love the fact that he even suggests one of the things that makes him most terrifying is that they don't jostle one another. But don't you remember that? If you've seen the two towers, you know why that's terrifying. These orcs, these, these, this, this incredible power that's now been harnessed in discipline, you see them stepping with each other in, in unison, in these formations. And there's something about the order of it all that emphasizes its complete power to destroy you. There is nothing that can stop it. It's, it's the reason that, that all great totalitarian armies like like the, one, like the images we get of Hitler and people goose-stepping in front of him or, or some of the images we get of, of these massive armies in, the, in, in China and North Korea is an image of complete order, of unstoppable power harnessed towards a purpose of destruction. That's the image that Joel gives us. But if anything makes it terrifying, if that's not enough, 
the most terrifying aspect of his imagery. What makes this army truly unstoppable and comprehensive in its destruction is that God rides at the head of it. Verse 11 says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, his army, for his camp is exceedingly great, and he who executes his word is powerful. Israel knew all too well what it was to have the Lord fighting for you. They had seen it in the days of Joshua. They'd seen it in the days of the conquest of the land. They'd seen it fight for them against Egypt and deliver them from captivity. But now, the same Lord who had fought unstoppably for them has turned against them. The question of verse 11 is the question we're all meant to ask. Who can endure it? Who can endure this? The third layer, the final judgment section, focuses on the nations. And, and for whatever we're meant to see in the locust invasion, it's perhaps a, a past historical event. It's a shadow of things to come. And this, this, uh, this judgment of God's people is perhaps related to the exile. We're not really sure when this was written. Was it past? Is it, is it looking forward to the future? We don't know. We do know that, that this last section, chapter 3, is meant to, to give us a sense of what the final day will look like. The day when God comes in judgment of all who stand opposed to him. It's mixed with imagery of God of God judging those who oppressed his people, very concrete images of what other nations were guilty of doing to Israel when basically kicking Israel when Israel was down in exile. It's full of images like that. But then it's also full of another higher layer of images that are clearly meant to to evoke in us some sense of the final battle, of something like what we come to think of as Armageddon. Chapter 3 leaves little doubt about who wins. It reads as God almost, almost mockingly calling the nations to battle. Look at verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men and let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It means the valley of decision. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. The Lord calls them to war, but not, not a kind of war that we might be thinking of. He calls them reversing the image of earlier prophets of, of a time of peace and harmony when swords will be beat into plowshares. Isaiah talks about this as, as an image of the end of all war, of a time of, of prosperity where only, only growing things, cultivation will be relevant. God calls them to beat their plowshares into swords, to arm themselves to be destroyed. God almost mockingly calls them all to battle once and for all. You know, George Bush got mocked a lot for the bring it on statement, right? You guys remember this? And perhaps rightly so. I mean, he, it, was, it was bombastic and didn't get borne out in history in the same way that he thought it would. But God is essentially doing the same thing here, only he's going to back it up. This is an image of God telling the nations, bring it on, and he's going to back it up. Perhaps the most telling detail in this account is in verse 13. Verse 13, he says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. 
Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. This is the image of war, when God fights against his enemies. It's not a fair fight. God and his warriors approach those who oppose him as farmers approaching a harvest. They are no more animate against him than is the grain as it's about to get chopped with some sort of sickle. God comes to them as one who, whose, whose power and authority, whose ability to make good on the things that he's stating he will do is unquestioned. It's just a matter of trampling grapes. That's the image of verse 13. For God, war is like farming. This judgment may represent justice, but it is far from a fair fight. So, how does this picture of absolute judgment strike you? How does this strike you? Does it strike you as not godlike? Maybe primitive? Does it strike you as mean or vindictive or even barbaric? Some of these some of this language? More fit for something like the Lord of the Rings than for something like the Bible or the activity of God? Whatever your response might be, have you ever thought long enough about it to consider whether it might be true? Whatever, however it strikes you, have you ever pushed through that visceral reaction to, to deep, more deeply ask whether or not this might actually be true? Ultimately, that's the only question that matters. If it's true, how we feel about it doesn't matter at all. It's irrelevant. The only question that matters is, is it true? And Joel doesn't try to prove it to you. Joel gives you no evidence for the fact that God actually said this or was able to make good on it. He just says it and calls you to repent. But I don't think it's totally off base to say that we instinctively believe it is true. Viscerally, we may have a reaction against it. We don't like to think about judgment or God as someone who judges. But instinctively, I think maybe there's something in us that thinks this is true, that expects it to happen. Here's what I mean. I think we, there's a reason that we're drawn to stories of revenge. There's some of the most popular movies out there, some of the storylines that we most get sucked into are stories about revenge. Where somebody's, you know, like an old western where somebody's daddy, his paw gets shot and he goes off riding into the, in, into the desert looking for who, the man who shot him. And we root for that guy, right? We root for the one who's getting revenge because we, it seems right to us that justice should be done. Instinctively, we look for it to be. But there's an even deeper reason. I think we have a sense that justice is right and necessary that a God who wouldn't judge doesn't fit with the world that we live in. Because the world that we live in is full of evil. This isn't just a happy-go-lucky place where everything all works out in the end. This is not a Disney movie that we're living. What we're living in is a world in which there is real oppression. A world in which genocide is real and fully documented in history and even present to some extent now. And we know that this, this evil is either the fundamental reality in the world, it wins and goes unpunished, or there is some figure out there who is powerful enough to make sure that even those evils that go unpunished in this life will one day all be accounted for. 
ultimately, I think our desire for justice, our connection with even revenge stories, is a deep trace inside of us of the fact that we know judgment is right and that it is coming. Joel is just supplying us with some language, some images, some concrete data that we can latch onto for what that's going to look like. And the image is this. Judgment is coming as far as there is opposition to God's authority. Wherever there are those who put anything else on the throne of their lives, there will be judgment. And this is what it's going to look like. His images may fit his own context more than they fit ours, but the images come through clear enough, that's for sure. No, no one will be left standing. I think what we've got to do is connect with the fact that not only do we want to see judgment coming, but that that judgment should come to us. We've got to put ourselves on the receiving end of the, of the one who goes out for revenge. We've got to see that we are the ones who have put ourselves in the place of authority that belongs to God alone. Hosea, I'll just refer you back to the audio from last week if you weren't here. Hosea is all about what it looks like for us to do that, for us to put ourselves in God's place. It's about idolatry and the, this, the deep wound that idolatry um, afflicts. We're guilty of the same things that are being judged here in, de- in degree. If, if not in degree, we're guilty of them in kind. I'd refer you to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You may think, hey, I didn't murder anybody. Jesus says if you've been angry against your brother in your heart, you're guilty of the same thing. You may think that you haven't committed adultery like Hosea is talking about. Jesus says if you've lusted after anybody, you're guilty. Same thing. In, in kind, if not in degree. So, for all the poetic imagery in this text, for all its references to non-existent nations, outdated warfare tactics, its point is a timeless one. Judgment's coming and we all deserve it. That's his point. That's the stakes of repentance. If you don't repent, this is what's coming for you. So what is the nature of repentance? That's the big question. That's Joel's main theme. It's a document that's meant to be read over and over in all different contexts throughout the life of Israel to call them back continually. Come back to the Lord. Repentance is a word that I've thrown around and haven't defined. It simply means to return, to turn away from what you were doing and, and, and turn back to something else. And as it's used by the prophets and other biblical writers, it means turn from sin, turn from idolatry, turn from any other source of meaning and purpose that that you might replace God with and and turn back to him. What does it look like to do that? That's Joel's main theme. In chapter 2, the words come from the Lord himself. The Lord says, even now return to me with all your heart with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What does repentance look like? That's, that's what it looks like. Repentance, a, a return to God, is something that's ultimately rooted in your heart. Your heart, in the Bible, in this time and culture, it's not a reference to the sentimentality. It's not a reference to necessarily strictly emotion in the way that we might use the term today. The heart is the center of your will. It's about your desires. It's about your affections, what you're drawn to, what you want. Repentance is about installing God there. It's about retreating, returning from false worship, 
from treating God as if he's not trustworthy, from treating other things as if they are trustworthy or more desirable than him. It's a call to return from placing ourselves and our ideas and our desires in the place of authority over our lives where only God belongs. The picture of judgment we've seen, if we use Hosea to help us fill out that picture, is a picture of judgment coming against all those who claim through their lives, through their actions and their attitudes, that God isn't who God says he is. That judgment is coming to set it right, to vindicate his name from false testimonies to it. Repentance, then, is about no longer establishing in our own hearts and minds false statements about who God is. We often say he's not worthy. He's not as valuable as this other thing that we are doing in place of what he's told us to do. Repentance is about putting, putting that aside. And if it's any good at all, it's rooted first and foremost not in a change of behavior. I love the way that the Lord says this here. He says he, he does want fasting and weeping and mourning because these were culturally appropriate ways of communicating remorse. But that's not all he wants. He won't leave it with those behaviors. He wants you to rend your hearts and not your garments. Any repentance that matters is a change of heart. It's the kind of heart allegiance that's referred to in the command to love God first and with everything that you have, with all of your mind and soul and strength. And it's the kind of heart allegiance that when it's confronted with the reality of sin, it responds with deep sorrow. Living with guilt is a bad thing. It's a testimony that you don't believe Jesus' death for you is strong enough to wipe away the sins that you've committed. But sorrow for sin, deeply connecting with what it is to sin against God, is not a bad thing. That's exactly what Joel is calling for here. True repentance is a condition of heart that sees sin for what it is. It hates it. It cries out to God for mercy and in submission. Now, much more quickly, the last two points go together. How can you know that if you repent... God will receive you. What are the grounds of repentance? Because if you're connecting with sin enough that you realize you need to turn back from what you were doing and turn to God, then you've connected with sin enough to wonder whether or not God could truly accept you given what you've done. The reason we know that God will receive us when we repent is a reason that's rooted in his character, and it's a character that's beautiful and that is unchanging. Verse 13 quotes practically from the law, from Moses. It says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The point is that he's all these things, but especially that he's full of steadfast love. That's a shorthand in the Old Testament for the God of the covenant. This is a God who has... His love is so steadfast, it's so stable that he's bound himself to it. He's written it in a binding covenant, not unlike the covenant of marriage. A covenant that won't be broken by anything because the powerful God of the universe is the one who's put it into place. He's pledged himself to the good of his people and he's done that out of mysterious love that isn't shakable. It's like what Hosea says in Hosea 11. The thought of judging his people, God said, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. The point is that if God responded like we would, then he would be vindictive. He would see these offenses against himself and he would not be able to let them stand and he would, he would wipe them away just for the sheer pleasure of doing it. He would not be able to respond in, in love and mercy. 
This is not a vindictive God. He will vindicate his name. Judgment is coming, but he is full of grace and compassion. It's just in who he is. It has nothing to do with us, and it's unwavering. That's why verse 32 of chapter 2 can promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you turn back, he's going to receive you, and this is what will happen. The fruits of repentance are simple. They are spelled out in chapter 2, which for the sake of time, I'm going to leave you to yourself to dig into deeply. But if we were to summarize the fruits of repentance, what we get when we turn back to the Lord, it's summarized in this. What we get is security in God's presence. We get security in God's presence. Most of chapter 2's language is about helping us to connect with the security that comes when he is Lord. It's images of fruitfulness and productivity of the, of the agricultural environment that they were living in. It's, it's an image of everything that was taken away being restored. It's, it's in, in, in fact exactly what he says in chapter 2, verse 25. I will restore to you, the Lord says, the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper and the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You'll eat in plenty and be satisfied, and then you will praise the name of the Lord your God. Returning to God means security because God wants to give us the things that we need so that we honor him as the one who gives them to us. He wants to give us the things that we need so that we will attribute them to him and not to some other source of of provision or security. That ultimately was the reason for judgment that Hosea talked about. It was that the people of Israel had taken this time of material prosperity and they had assumed that it came from worshiping the idols that they had spent their, their lives running after. When in fact, it was, gift, it was gifts from God. What prosperity looks like in, in repentance is not some sort of prosperity gospel promise that God is, is like a genie in a bottle, that if you rub him in the right way, he, whatever you want pops out. It's a promise that everything you really need will come to you from his hand. It's a promise that when you acknowledge him as your Lord, he will be your God and you will be his people. And being his people means having everything that you need. It's the imagery of the Old Testament of Eden that was lost at the fall. It's the imagery of the promised land as a place flowing with milk and honey. It's an imagery that's fulfilled in Jesus who came validating our trust in him by his own death as a token of the fact that God won't hold anything back that we need. This image in Joel of God providing us with everything we need is the imagery of Romans 8, of the promise that all those who are his people, everything works together for their good. And there is nothing, not not height nor depth, not angel or principality, not things in heaven or things on earth that can separate us from the love of God. It's absolute security because it's security established by the Lord of the universe. But that security on its own is not enough. What God promises here is security in his presence. Look again at chapter 2 and verse 27. What he promises is that in this newfound security, as a reward of your repentance, the fruits of it, you're going to know that I'm in the midst of Israel. And it shall come, verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. This is Peter's sermon text from the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit comes. The promise of Joel is that what is going to secure us fundamentally is God himself. The longing of the psalmist was the presence of God. He described his longing as a deer 
panting after water. He wants to be in God's presence. The question burning in the Psalms, and Psalms like, I believe it's 15 or 25, who can ascend your holy hill? Who can enter into your presence? And the answer is that it's he who has clean hands and a pure heart. But we don't have clean hands. We don't have pure hearts. That's the rest of the Old Testament illustrating that. That's the point of the prophet. So how? How is God going to give us his presence as he's promising here if we're not worthy to enter it? Jesus. It all comes back to him. Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. John 1 tells us that he is God made flesh who dwelt among us. Just as Joel promised here, he literally pitched his tent with us. We were unworthy to enter his presence, to ascend his holy hill, because we don't have clean hands or a pure heart. So God has come to us. He has come down. His presence is secured because he's the one who gives it to us. And ultimately, repentance is rewarded with the token of the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost, a spirit that even now begins to form us into those who want what God wants, begins to awaken our affections to the, to the things of, of holiness, to what is right and true and beautiful. It's a token of an unending and unbroken presence that's coming for us through Jesus at the end of time. And it's a token of our repentance. It's produced only by that. The call of Joel, of course, is the call to repent before, too, before it's too late. It's not some hand-painted sign next to the interstate. It's much more vivid and much more serious than that. He promises that judgment is coming and that it is not going to go well for any who oppose God. But he promises that there's a God who in his own nature is love. And that repentance is rewarded with security in his presence. Will you pray with me? Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you have not held our sins against us if we turn to you in his name. What we ask now is for hearts that are broken by sin, that are broken and in that brokenness find a place of need and true repentance, a place from which to now interact with you in a way that's right and true. So we ask, would you break us? And then would you heal us through Jesus? We ask for your Spirit's work in us to continue to multiply, to expand into every pocket of our heart that holds out against you. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.